It's good to see you in the house of the Lord. It's good to be here. I told Pastor Dale that in some ways I hate to preach when he's here. I feel a little bit bad, but I don't feel so bad I'm not going to do it. Though. Uh, I do appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I will have to say that it made yesterday more stressful, though. Uh, yesterday felt more like I was a pastor with Sunday coming, you know. Uh, us evangelists, we're, we're able to, um, we're able to uh, preach a sermon more than one time. Uh, but pastors, they have to come up with a new sermon, and I've been a pastor, a new sermon every Sunday, and back when we had Sunday night service, every Sunday night and every Wednesday, and I appreciate our pastor so very much, and uh, the job that he does in preparing and sharing the Word of God with us. This morning, I'm going to ask those of you that are able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to be reading out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 beginning with verse 18, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to himself his wife. And he did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you. Dreams, surprisingly enough, have played a prominent role in the shaping of the modern mindset about Christmas. In 1822, the poet Clement Clark Moore wrote a poem entitled, A Visit from St. Nicholas. Now you may think, I, I've never heard of that, but you have. You just probably know it by its more modern name, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Prior to the creation of this poem, St. Nicholas, the patron saint of children, had never been associated with a sleigh or reindeer or many of the things that children think about today. And yet over 200 years after that poem was written, most children and adults today know the words to that poem. And I'm not going to say them all, but I want to just give you a taste of it, just to remind you. "'Twas the night before Christmas,' the poem says, "'when all through the house 
Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their head. Does that sound familiar to you? Most of us know that poem and probably could go on and recite many more of the lines in that poem. From 1822, just over 200 years ago, until today, children are still dreaming of the things that were talked about in this poem. And in many ways, that poem has fashioned a lot of what modern society thinks and believes about the Christmas season. Of course, children no longer are dreaming of sugar plums, but maybe iPhones and Xboxes and things like that. Maybe you're like me, and you're not necessarily dreaming of gifts. Carla says I'm one of those unusual people that doesn't like to receive gifts. Sometimes she says I'm kind of Scrooge. And, um, but I do dream about different things about Christmas. I think one of the things that probably I dream about is having a white Christmas. I would like to have one. I like snow. We lived in Romania, as Pastor said, for almost eight years, and there we had about six months of snow, and I enjoyed it very, very much. In 1940, Irving Berlin wrote a song one weekend while he was staying in a hotel. He stayed up all night, and the next week he told his secretary that he wanted her to take down the words to the song that he had written. And he supposedly told his secretary while she was taking down these words, he says, not only is this the best song that I have ever written, it is the best song that anybody has ever written. The song was White Christmas. The first public performance of that song was by Bing Crosby on his NBC radio show on Christmas Day, 1941, just a few days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Since the first day that the lyrics to White Christmas were sung, people have been dreaming of a white Christmas. Those words are iconic. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, where treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write. May your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. In 2009, you might be surprised to know that the Guinness Book of World Records recognized that song is the biggest selling single in the history of the world. Up until 2009, that song sold over 100 million copies. Hmm. Then again, sometimes one person's dream is another person's nightmare, right? I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, but maybe... For some of you, that sounds more like a nightmare. But even bad dreams have shaped our understanding of Christmas, the modern understanding of Christmas. A Christmas Carol is a novella written by Charles Dickens and published on December the 19th, 1843. It sold out that same year by Christmas Eve in less than one week's time. The story is about an elderly miser by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge who is visited by the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future in a dream. And their visits 
And, there, and the dream transforms this man into a kinder, gentler soul. There are discussions among scholars as to whether this fully, is a fully secular story or whether it should be interpreted more as a Christian allegory because a Christmas carol has been acknowledged for its influence on modern and Western observance of Christmas, inspiring many of the Christians Christmas traditions that we hold dear today, like family gatherings, seasonal food and drink, and an emphasis on having a festive, generous spirit. While the dreams of these poems, songs, and plays may have influenced our modern concept of Christmas, more than anything else, they reveal a secular idea about Christmas that has come to permeate our traditions and the way we celebrate and the way we view Christmas in our society here in the United States. It might be interesting to you that even though these dreams do not represent what Christmas is really about, even though they have influenced what people think Christmas is about in a very powerful way, there is a dream that we can look to that tells us the true meaning of Christmas. And it's a dream that took place 2,000 years ago, just a few months before Jesus was born. The setting of that dream is the engagement, the betrothal of two Jewish young people by the name of Mary and Joseph. And they have been betrothed, and uh, I need to say that that's more than our modern-day engagement. Our modern-day engagement does not come with any, any legal terms. You can be engaged and easily become disengaged. I mean, uh, all you have to do is just decide we no longer want to be together. But in Mary and Joseph's case, they were betrothed. It, it is like the first step of marriage itself. In everybody's eyes, they were already married. They were not living together. It was common in that day that uh, this arrangement would take place. They would be like husband and wife, but the uh, woman would continue to live with her parents until she was of physical maturity and ready to go and live with her husband. But something very bad happens as far as Joseph is concerned and what he knows at that moment in time because he comes to know and to realize that Mary is pregnant. Well, that's a big problem because Joseph knows that he has not been with Mary. They have not had physical relationship. And so in Joseph's mind and thinking about things from a human perspective, there's only two possibilities. Either Mary is guilty of infidelity, either she has committed adultery, or somebody has violated her. He may not know which is the case, but regardless of what has taken place, his marriage is over. Because as a good Jewish man and a person that the Bible says here in that passage of Scripture was living a good, righteous life, trying to live according to the law, he has no other option before him but to divorce her. And Joseph is thinking about these things. We know this from the passage of Scripture. He's, he, all of these thoughts are racing through his mind, and he realizes that he doesn't have but one option, and that is to put her away 
to divorce her, but it would have been possible for Joseph to do this in a very public way, in a very shameful way, in a way where uh, everybody would know and it would be drug out for everybody to see and to talk about. But Joseph decides that he's not going to handle things that way. After all, he's a righteous man. He, de- he decides that he will divorce Mary. He will give her a certificate of divorce, but privately. He will not involve uh, the legal people or religious people in this affair. Can you imagine as Joseph goes to sleep that night or tries to go to sleep that night, uh, how bad that would have been? I mean, the thoughts of anger, of hurt, of disappointment, uh, of all of the uh, shame, everything washing over him like waves. And we've all had things like that, difficult things in our life that made it hard to sleep. And I'm sure that that night is... Joseph was thinking about what he was going to do the next morning. He probably had a very difficult time going to sleep, but at some point, he drifts off, maybe just from exhaustion itself. And it's during that few moments of sleep in that very difficult night that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. And it's in that dream that God not only answers a lot of questions that Joseph has and not only helps him understand better what's going on in his world, in his life, and in the life of his family, but it's in that dream that God reveals the true meaning of Christmas. I want us to think about that just for a few moments this morning. The first thing that is revealed in that dream is the miracle of Christ's birth. Everything about the birth of Jesus Christ is miraculous. Everything about it is miraculous. In the scripture here, it says that the angel told Joseph, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It is a miraculous conception that will lead to a miraculous birth. Mary herself was also told of this miraculous conception of birth. In Luke 131, it says that an angel told her, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary had the question that all of us would have had. How is this possible? I've never been with a man. I'm a virgin. How how is it possible that I will have a child? And the angel answers her in Luke 1.35, and the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Let me tell you what Christmas is about. It is about the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not born like every other person that has ever been born. Every person that has ever been born into this world was born the same way except Jesus. Every person that was ever born was born from a man coming together with a woman, but not Jesus. Mary was a virgin. She had never been with a man. And what happened with her is a supernatural work of God. It is one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world. And anybody that would try to tell you that they can fully understand this miracle is not telling you the truth. 
Because the Bible tells us what happened, that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and she conceived in her womb, and that what was conceived in her womb was of God, was of the Most High, was of the Holy Spirit. But it is supernatural and will never be able to be understood in the physical in its fullest and complete context. Jesus is a miracle. His conception is a miracle. His birth is a miracle. His life is a miracle. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the miracle of Christ's birth. But not only is Jesus' birth a miracle because it was a work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' birth is a miracle because it is the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy. The angel also either told or Matthew, uh, as he is uh, giving context to what the angel said, lets us know, it says, it says, so all this was done the dream, everything that is happening, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And we all know that Jesus is Emmanuel. But it is the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given by Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. The context of that prophecy may be something that you're not quite as familiar with. In the context of that prophecy, we find it in Isaiah chapter 6. What is going on? The kings of Israel and Aram have formed a coalition in order to besiege Jerusalem. The plan is that they will kill King Ahaz, they will destroy the line of David, and they will set up a vassal king in Jerusalem that is faithful to them. The prophet Isaiah is dispatched by God himself to go and to tell King Ahaz that these plans will not succeed. The Davidic line will remain and the house of Israel and Aram will be destroyed. But if you go back and you read in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, what you will discover is that even though Isaiah goes and delivers this message from God that these plans will not come to fruition, that Jerusalem will survive, that the Davidic line will survive, Ahaz does not believe the message from God. He does not believe the prophet. One of the things that Isaiah is told to tell Ahaz and this is kind of unusual itself because many times in the Bible, people are cautioned not to put God to the test. But in this particular instance, the prophet is told to tell Ahaz to ask for a test. To ask God to prove or to demonstrate that what he says is really going to happen. But Ahaz is so reluctant to believe what God has said that he refuses to request a sign. And so God tells the prophet Isaiah, because Ahaz has refused to do what I told him to do, and because he has not believed my message, his house will fail, along with that of Israel and Aram but the Davidic line will be preserved. 
And since Ahaz will not ask for a sign, God himself gives a sign to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. And this is the sign, and what a sign it is, that a virgin will be found with a child. And she not only will be found with a child, but she will give birth, and that the child she gives birth to will be Emmanuel. It will be God with us. It will be God in the flesh. Now, scholars are mixed in their ideas, as they often are, about prophecies. Because many times prophecies that have to do, messianic prophecies that have to do with Jesus, many times they also have a present meaning of, you know, for something that was going on at that time. They have a partial meaning for that time. And then the ultimate or total fulfillment of that prophecy is realized in Jesus or in the Messiah. And Scholars look at this and they say, well, what was the meaning for him at that moment in that time with what was going on? And there's not a lot of agreement on what that immediate meaning was. But what we do know is this, that God does give a sign that the Davidic line will not fall in this battle. And God is right. And the sign that he gives that all the world will know that the Davidic line does not fall, is that there will come a day when something will happen that has never happened in the history of the world, and that is a virgin will be with child, and that she will give birth, and the son that she gives birth to will be God in the flesh. Now, you're talking about a prophecy. I mean, imagine that. I mean, only God could come up with something that unbelievable. Only God could come up with something that challenging. Only God could come up with something that unlikely. And it doesn't take a week or a month or a year or a decade for this prophecy to come about. 700 years pass. I mean, this is God. This is the way God is. This is the way God works. I mean, with God, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And so It's just epic amounts of time goes by. Hundreds of years, 700 years pass. And here is God coming to this young Jewish man by the name of Joseph, who has just the day before had the most gut-wrenching thing that's ever happened to him in his life happen. His wife, the one that he has been betrothed to, the one that he's fixing to take from her father's house into his house and to live together and to have children with, he's found out this woman is pregnant. And the only way that could be possible humanly is for her to have been unfaithful or for somebody to have violated her. And his whole world has caved in. And here he is trying to get a few moments sleep before he gets up the next day and does what he's already determined to do in his heart, and that's to go and to give her a certificate of divorce privately, only with two witnesses there, and allow her to go away so that this thing that is already a scandal will not get bigger than it already is. And in the midst of that night and that confusion, an angel of the Lord comes to this man in a dream. It says, Joseph... 
Do you remember the prophecy of Isaiah? That 700-year-old prophecy that God gave that one day a virgin would be with child and that that child that was born of that virgin would be God in the flesh. And of course, Joseph, as a good Jewish man, knew that prophecy very, very well. He probably had learned it as a young boy, as a young teenager. And the angel says, well, Joseph, you don't need to be afraid to take Mary from her father's house into your house. You don't need to be afraid to move forward in this marriage relationship because the child that she is carrying is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Mary has done nothing wrong. Mary has not been with a man. She's not committed adultery. She's not been violated. What has happened to Mary is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Your wife is a virgin, just like you always knew her to be. She's just a virgin that is with child. And listen, Joseph, it's even better than that. The child that she's carrying is Emmanuel. It's God with us. My friend, Christmas is about the miracle of Christ's birth. But not only that, Christmas is about the majesty of Christ's person. Joseph is told by the angel in the dream in verse 21, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I'm telling you, that's one of the first times we see this name mentioned in relation to Christ in the Bible, and what a name it is. There is no name like the name of Jesus. I'm telling you, Jesus is the greatest person that was ever born into this world. Jesus was born in obscurity in an animal barn, and yet he is more well-known than any other person born in history. Jesus never wrote a book, and yet thousands of books have been written about him, more than about any other person that has ever lived. Jesus never earned an educational degree, and yet they called him teacher, and thousands of schools and places of higher learning have been built in his name. Jesus had no servants, and yet they called him master. Jesus had no medicine, and yet they called him healer. Jesus had no army, and yet the kings of the world feared him. Jesus did not win a single military battle, and yet he conquered the whole world. Jesus never traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born, and yet his name and his gospel are proclaimed in every country, in every city, in every town, in every village, in hamlet, on every corner of the face of this earth, 2,000 years after his death. Jesus was the most meek and humble person that has ever graced the pages of history, and yet he has transformed the lives of billions of people over the last 2,000 years. 
And I am a living testimony that he's still changing lives because he changed my life. And even as I go and preach the gospel around the world, even as I go today and lift up the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, even as I go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ today, I see him changing and transforming lives all over the world. My friends, let me tell you, Christmas is about the miracle of Christ's birth, but Christmas is also about the majesty of Christ's person. But not only was Joseph told by this angel in this dream that he was going to be given the name Jesus, he was also told that he was going to be given the name Emmanuel. He said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus is majestic because he is God in the flesh. You see, there's a lot of people in this world that believe that Jesus is a real person, that he's a real historical figure. There are many people in this world that believe that Jesus was a good person, that he was a good leader, that he was a, a good moral agent. There's a lot of people that believe he was a scholar. There's a lot of people that believe he was a healer, that he, he was a prophet. But my friends, let me tell you, Jesus was more than that. Jesus was and is God. John doesn't give a traditional picture of the birth of Jesus in the manger like we find in Luke, but we do have a theological picture of Jesus there in John 1.1 when John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And that Word that was in the beginning with God, and that Word that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. My friends, Jesus is majestic. He is the most majestic person that has ever walked on this earth. But not only is Christmas about the miracle of Christ's birth and the majesty of Christ's person, but Christmas is about the magnitude of Christ's mission. It's just one little simple phrase in this dream, and yet it's the most awesome mission that's ever been given to any person born into this world. As God so often does when he delivers a message, no matter how he delivers it, the message is usually, if it comes from God, it's usually short, powerful, and impossible to believe without faith. And the message that this angel delivers to Joseph in this dream fits all of that criteria. It was short, it was powerful, and it was impossible to believe without faith. What did the angel tell Joseph that this child would do? Why did the angel say this child would be born? Matthew 121, the angel told Joseph, for he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. 
Can you imagine? Think about the magnitude of that mission. Now, there have been many influential people born into this world that have accomplished many wonderful things. Some have been great leaders, some great inventors, great musicians, great athletes, scientists, Nobel Prize winners, scholars, entrepreneurs, but no one in the history of the world has had a greater mission or a greater purpose than that of Jesus Christ. Christ's mission is at the heart of why the secular world hates him so much. You see, as we celebrate Jesus this Christmas season, there are many millions of people, multiplied millions, that are, that are worshiping, worshiping him this Christmas season, recognizing him for who he is, you know, thinking about the true meaning of Christmas, the miracle of his birth, the, the majesty of his person, the magnitude of his mission. But let me tell you, there's a lot of people that it's this very idea of Jesus' mission that he's come to save those that are lost that caused the world to hate him. And just like, just like Jesus is one of the most, if not the most well-known person in the world, there is nobody that has ever been born into this world that is hated more than Jesus Christ. This world hates Jesus. They hate him. They hate his gospel. They hate his church. They hate his truth. And I can tell you the world does not hate Jesus because he was born. The world does not hate Jesus because he did miracles. The world does not hate Jesus because he died on a cross or even because he rose from the dead. Jesus tells us in the New Testament why the world hates him. In John 7, 7, Jesus said, But the world hates me because I testify about the world that its works are evil. Let me tell you, that's why the world, that's why the secular world hates Jesus today. Because Jesus testifies of the world that its works are evil. And I'm telling you, we live in a world where people do not want to be told that what you're doing is wrong. We live in a world and in society where everybody wants to justify every action and evil of their life. They want to normalize it. They want to legislate it and make it legal. They don't want anybody to tell them that they're wrong. But my friends, let me tell you something. The birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus is about the magnitude of the mission that he came to accomplish. And the mission that he came to accomplish is to save us from our sins. And the, the idea behind that mission is that we're sinners. The idea of the secular world is that people are basically good. You hear people say this all the time. I hear news people say this. I hear athletes say this. I hear people in Hollywood say this. This is the philosophy of the secular world. It is the Oprah Winfrey gospel, if you will, that people basically deep down are good. But you know what the opinion and the prognosis of the gospel is? That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there's none righteous, not one. The Bible says that our hearts are wicked beyond belief. The greatest need of every person who has ever lived on this earth other than Jesus Christ is for a Savior. 
I wrote a little booklet several years ago. We've given many of them away here. Perhaps you've seen it or read it. The title of it is Salvation, Man's Greatest Need, God's Greatest Gift. Because the greatest need of humanity is for a Savior. And the greatest work of Jesus is that he came to save us. In Luke 2, 10 and 11, on the night that Jesus was born and the angels appeared to the shepherds, the angels told them, Do not be afraid, for behold, we bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Just a few days later, Jesus was taken to the temple to be dedicated. And when the priest Simeon took Jesus into his hands, he began to pray. And as he looked into the eyes of Jesus, one of the things that he prayed is that my eyes have seen your salvation. Just a few years later, John the Baptist would look up at Jesus walking down the banks of the Jordan and proclaim, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus himself said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Bible says God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The Apostle Paul said, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, my friends. Christmas, Christmas is about the miracle of Christ's birth. It's about the majesty of Christ's person. And it's about the magnitude of Christ's mission. The greatest mission that anybody has ever had. Jesus' mission, his purpose, his reason for being born, his reason for coming into this world was to save me and you from our sin. What a mission. And my friend, nothing turned Jesus from that mission. Every moment of his life was focused on that mission. Jesus' own disciples would come to him and say, you need to eat, we know you're hungry. And Jesus would say, I have meat to eat that you don't know about. And they would say, when did somebody give you something to eat? And Jesus would say, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish or to complete his purpose for my life. And what was the purpose? What was his calling? What was his mission? That he would die for our sins. That he would save us from our sins. And Jesus did that. Even when he was facing death on a cross, there agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane with all of hell focused against him, Jesus makes a determined decision that I am going to do the will of the Father. I'm going to lay down my life on a cross. And he did. Jesus stretched out his arms. No one took his life from him. Jesus says, I lay my life down. He gave his life. He sacrificed his body. He shed his blood to fulfill the mission for which he came into the world to save us from our sins. When you you see that cross lifted up, when you see Jesus hanging on Golgotha, my friend, you see Jesus fulfilling the mission that he came to fulfill. When you hear Jesus uttering the words, it's finished. What's finished? The mission. What I've come to do. I've finished what I came to do. I have done what it takes to save a lost world from their sin. 
My friend, when Jesus is taken down off that cross and put into that tomb, and that stone is rolled in front of the entrance, and three days later, women go to that tomb to anoint Jesus' dead body with burial spices, and when they get there, the stone is rolled away, and there's an angel there that says, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He's risen. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians that if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, that we, are of all people, are most miserable because we have no hope. But my friend, when Jesus rose from the dead, he not only gained victory for himself, but he gained victory for every person that's under the curse of the, of the law, under the curse of sin. Jesus was walking with his disciples just a few days after his resurrection, and he begins to ascend into heaven. There's a passage of Scripture in Psalm 24, verses 7 and 10, that many believe is like a prophetic vision of Jesus after he has ascended into heaven. In Psalm 24, 7, the Bible says these words, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Can you just think with me just for a moment? Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's finished the work that he has to do. He's accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for the salvation of sinful man. And as he's walking with his disciples, he begins to ascend into heaven. And there he is at the gates of heaven itself. And for the first time, the people on the other side of that wall, every angel and every created being since the foundation of the world is behind the wall of heaven and they hear these words ring out from the mouth of a man a man is commanding heaven a man is commanding the gates of heaven to be lifted up to be open can you imagine what happened behind the gates of that city and the gates of heaven? I can imagine when they heard that, when they heard a man who had the audacity to command the gates of heaven, I can imagine that every angel in heaven drew their sword. And maybe Gabriel said, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory that would dare command the gates of this celestial city? And the words come back, the Lord strong and mighty, and the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your gates, lift up your heads, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the word comes back again, who is this King of glory? And Jesus says, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And let me tell you something. For the first time in the history of all history, the gates of that place begin to open. And Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, the one that was born miraculously in that manger, walks into heaven. And every angel there, thousands upon thousands, fall on their face, prostrate before the resurrected Son of God. Oh, hell, the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him king of all. And my friend Jesus, with his pierced hands and feet, walked through those prostrated angels 
and he comes up to the very throne of God itself. And without even asking permission, because it's his right, he ascends the throne of God himself. A throne that would make the throne of David and Solomon look like a throne of paper mache. He ascends the throne of God himself and sits down at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says that God has made this Jesus whom we crucify both Lord and Christ. He's King of Kings, and He's Lord of Lords. You want to know what Christmas is about? My friend, it, it's not about Santa Claus. It's not about lights. It's not about trees. It's not about presents. It's not about snow. Christmas is about the miracle of Christ's birth. It's about the majesty of Christ's person. And it's about the magnitude of Christ's mission. And what is his mission? To save his people from their sin. Has Jesus accomplished that mission? He has made a way for us to be justified from the penalty of sin. He has saved us. He is making a way now, even as we sit in this room, for us to be sanctified, for us to be saved from the power of sin. And one day, because he is seated on that throne and he is interceding for us with the Father and he is the only mediator between man and God, one day, he will save us when we see him and he glorifies us. He has saved us. He is saving us and he will save us. And my friend, there is only one response to that. And it's the response of the shepherds that came to that manger. It's the response of the wise men that came to Jesus' house when he was a toddler. The only response to it is to fall at his feet. And to give him everything that we have and everything that we are as a living sacrifice. And to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, my friends, it's good. It's good. I believe in it. It's good to bring the backpacks down to the altar. It's good to bring the shoeboxes down to the altar. It's good to bring the mission offering down to the altar. But when you really realize what Christmas is about, you're going to bring yourself to the altar.